You're listening to Fueled, a Finstamaker podcast, and I'm your host, Catherine Finstamaker. Today, we have with us Lolly Brasso. Mr. Lolly Brasso is the Senior Project Manager and Associate Director within our survey division and serves as the point of contact for many of our firm's larger midstream capital projects. He has performed pipeline, hydrographic, topographic, and boundary surveys for local, state, and federal agencies, major and independent oil companies, as well as private industry. Lolly is also one of the staff coordinators for technical overview and quality control, having done work for clients in Louisiana, Texas, Arkansas, Mississippi, and Pennsylvania. Registered professional land surveyor, number 4692, Lolly began surveying in 1974 and has been here at Finstamaker since August of 1977. A jack of all trades here, and thank you for taking time to record with us today. Our conversation today, in line with this podcast season on infrastructure, we're going to focus on pipeline infrastructure, as that is your current forte, among your many other strengths, of course, but we'll zero in on pipelines. How's that? I like that a lot. I appreciate it. Yes. (laughs) Okay. Thank you for having me here. Yes, absolutely. So what is it like to know that you are an integral component to many pipelines coming to fruition in the region? Do you think about your job that way? I guess for me, I do think about it that way because when you look at the role we serve, just as a survey company and in general, the infrastructure that um, is so integral to transporting product from point A to point B, and we're just on generally on the front end of that task, you know, so it makes it real, real challenging to know that you get the opportunity to work with customers. And, uh, and for me, it's uh, the challenge of it and seeing it come to fruition is the best part of it, you know, so I think in our area, especially in South Louisiana, um, Texas, Mississippi, um, we're right in the hub of the pipeline industry, so it makes it real, real easy to get involved in these challenges. So for me, uh, you know, it's enjoyable just to see the the industry rely on fence to maker many times to help them get from point A to point B and to put their uh, product in fruition. So you know, for me, it, I like the the challenges of the job, and um, I'm glad that we're looked at in that aspect. I've heard uh, some of our colleagues talk about your excellent aptitude for pipeline route planning. Can you talk a little bit about what goes into determining an optimal route for a pipeline and what all that entails? Yeah, that's that's pretty interesting, and, and I do enjoy it. In fact, when I had gone to the, um, into the northeast to the Marcellus Shell up there, uh, part of my job was to route pipelines. And essentially, I'd, I'd see it a lot of times. I work with a lot of routing people myself. Um, you know, a client will come to you and they'll say, we have a, um, a project that starts at point A and we need to get to point B. Mm. And it sounds simple, but when you look at it from a real-time perspective, there's a lot of um, circumstances, landowners, permitting, obstacles, um, many constraints just the geography of the area the uh, it could be mountainous it could be hilly it could be the Chafalaya basin it could be a river a stream it could be many different things that you'll have to encumber to get from point a to point b so drawing a straight line on a map looks easy but the 
actual routing of the pipeline entails a lot of different things. So for me, I enjoyed it. When I was in the Northeast, I enjoyed it because it was a little bit different, a lot of mountainous terrain, a lot of landowners that were very inquisitive on why are you running a pipeline across my property? Okay, why are you so running maybe here? not as familiar as here. <laughs> very, uh, yes, because it, it's certainly not as mature an industry as it is down here. Um, south in the southern part of the region, which we're here, um, it, it's different. You have a lot of different terrains. You have the Chafalaya Basin. You may have um, rivers, uh, Mississippi, the Chafalaya, things you got to cross that become a permitting issue. Okay. You have landowners that may not be fond of having a pipeline across their property. So you got to look at some of those issues that come up. And as you move west, you get into West Texas, some of those places where uh, it's, it's a lot easier to route, but you still have some challenges in okay. getting the pipe in the ground. So uh, for me, I, I just enjoy just knowing the constructability side of it and knowing what may need to be done to get the pipe in the ground, get it built, and get it online. And I've been very fortunate in my career, extremely fortunate to work with people that are far more knowledgeable than me in that aspect. So I've been able to learn a lot from those folks too. Still work with them today, you know, so they really do help me. Uh, a lot of people that have been in the business f actually building the pipelines, welders, uh, um, you know, backhoe operators that now have moved themselves up the ladder to where they can, they actually do constructability surveys themselves. So I've been very fortunate to learn from them some of the challenges they face on yeah. a construction side. So and I can imagine their perspective on things is probably shifted as they've changed roles. As they've changed roles, technology, um, machinery, you know, <laughs> you know, back in the day you had just maybe certain types of machinery. Now there's so many different uh, components of pipelines in different regions whether you're digging with a backhoe or you're blasting across rock or using a rock chipper there's so many different strategies that have to be used in developing the route and i've been fortunate to be side by side with a lot of these folks and and it really it benefits me it benefits fence to maker that we have that knowledge base and i and, and so i've been very fortunate to uh, be able to go there well, I think that leads us into not the next question, but the following, which mm -hmm. is how do you find that technology has changed the industry and how has it transformed what you do? Simple. <laughs> Very simple. You know, I started surveying back in 1974. Mm -hmm. Okay. So when you look at 1974 versus today, you know, back in that day there, we'd get out and go survey a pipeline. And you'd break out, which probably doesn't mean much to you, a steel chain. You'd have to use a steel chain and physically measure things with a steel chain. You know, you didn't have electronic distance meters. You didn't have RTK. You didn't have GPS. So to do a project was extremely hands-on. You had to really just measure everything in a very old-fashioned way. So when you looked at the advent, let's say when GPS came out 20-plus years ago, it changed the industry completely. It okay. really did uh, evolve the industry into a far broader technology base because then you could accomplish probably 10 to 15 times the work in what you were just doing a year ago. Dragging a chain. Dragging a chain. Great, <laughs> great. Yeah, so you see you're a surveyor by trade. You okay. see <laughs> so anyway, so when you look at the, the advent of technology, that has brought the industry to a whole different level. What it also did is 
it enabled a lot of people to get into the industry that uh, may not have understood the true conventional surveying. So it broadened the ability for a lot of people to get into the industry. Second of all, so that's from a field perspective. So you look at the office perspective when I came to work for Finstamaker and worked for your grandfather, Charles Howard. I remember the day sitting there using slide rules to calculate things. So when you think about that, so just think about it, put it in perspective. And I know that's 40 years ago, okay, but that's not a long period of time. I don't think I know what a slide ruler is. That's what I was probably going (laughs) to ask you if you knew what a slide rule is. We used to calculate things using double meridian distance. These are old ways of calculation before you had calculators. I mean, basically it was so when you put it in perspective, you don't even know what slide rule is, you know, and it's like, well, that's just 40 years ago. It's not that, that long back. So you look at the field perspective, and we've taken the technology so far. Yeah. you got LIDAR nowadays. You have just, there's so much technology out there that enables us to do a far better job mm-hmm. in a much shorter period of time on the office side. So I started with slide rule. Now you have AutoCAD. You have all this computerization. You have all these databases, GIS, you, back in the day, you never even heard about GIS, Geographical Information Systems. What in the world is that? You know, whereas today, that's an integral part of projects. Yeah. Every company has a GIS-based uh, probably departments to store data, which I think is a great repository for data. Mm-hmm. So when you look at the transition from when I started to where it's at today, I can't even imagine what it's going to be like in 10 or 15 years. Yeah. You see, it's it's because the evolution of it has transpired so quick. Once it started evolving into a strong technology base, it escalated incrementally versus the first 25 years I was in survey. Yeah. So, Did you find that was like a professional development challenge to, to stay on pace with everything, to stay in touch with the latest technology? Or did it just come your way and you just embraced it and rolled with it? Or was there ever like a sticking point where you thought, man, I was, you know, I was enjoying doing it the way that I was. I mean, I can imagine in the field from you know, carrying a chain and that. So it would be easy as far as in a manual labor sense, it would be easy to embrace that newer technology. But is that same attitude or that attitude that I would imagine, is that found with this other sort of like desktop technology? Was it easy for you to adopt and embrace? I think I think to answer your question is twofold. It was easy, but there's always resistance to change. I remember when GPS first came out, it was amazing how we looked at it and said, because you're so adapt to doing things a certain way, you know, human nature makes it easy to continue to do it that way. And sometimes change is difficult. But a lot of, a lot of folks could see the, um, the advent and the, the ability to increase production with that. So there was some real acceptance to it, but there was also some pushback because mm-hmm. it's a it's a changing technology it's a new technology uh yeah. you know it's kind of scary sometimes that you have this technology that shows up and you're like ah, you know really don't know what that's like but you can feel the the need for it but until you really jump in and embrace it it's hard to really get your arms around it and say yeah this is going to benefit us or this is not going to benefit us so i remember clearly when gps came out there was sort of a an acceptance and at the same time there was a pushback you know, okay. there was really a pushback to it because it was new technology that was scary, mm-hmm. very scary technology that somehow or another we could utilize these satellites versus a chain to get us from point A to point B. 
Yeah. You, you follow me there? Yeah, so. it just sounds otherworldly, I guess. You know, At first, I can imagine. It, it I'll share this boring. with you. you. You'll enjoy this. Your dad will enjoy this. Okay. So one thing about your dad, he was always so technology-driven. I will say that. Bill, uh, I always respected him so much because he could see technology way out in the future. And, not, and I'll, I'll go back in time that you probably don't even know this, but this was probably 25 years ago. And being we're on the technology-driven side of it, I'll give you a little, a little foresight into your dad's perspective on things. So... I remember your dad would go every year to these technology conferences in Vegas and California. And this, I would say, probably 25 or 30 years ago. I remember Bill came back, and uh, we were much smaller then, of course, much smaller company. And we were all standing around, and he used to talk about technology. And he said, you know, he said, I can see in years to come where we're going to be able to walk around the face of the earth with a watch that is going to give us positions that is you're going to be able to talk to. And we looked at your dad and said, oh, boy, (laughs) where in the world did he come from? Yeah. Needless to say, here we are in 2019. We have watches that we can essentially talk to. We have watches that give us positional data. We have. So it's a credit to him that he did have the foresight. That is part of the it's a compliment because that's what got Fence to make it aware we are today is that foresight and technology. And I, I never forget that day when, when your dad came in and he was talking about that and we all kind of looked at him. And if he was in here today, I'd say, Bill, I think we all kind of looked at you and we're a little worried about you. Kind of had but... some sideways glances <laughs> among each other. So, so to, to spent give too you much time in California, <laughs> absolutely. So to give you some idea of the technology, you can see where back then that wasn't even a concept. It wasn't even yeah. thought of, but it really was. And yeah. fortunately, um, you know, Bill had the foresight to, to embrace that and yeah. say, we're going to get there some ways, some shape, some form. And yeah. look where we are today. Yeah. I mean, look where we are today. We're sitting here talking on microphones. You're going to modify this. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, so yeah. I didn't, I didn't want to get off beat too much, but I thought that was an inter- interesting part of no, technology. It's perfect. That's exactly what this is all about. Just kind of back into the pipeline realm. I've sure. heard you talking about the differences between upstream, midstream and downstream. So can you explain fairly generally the differences between those terms and where you fit into that mix? I think generally speaking, it's a general term, but typically the upstream side of it will be at the wellhead. In other words, somebody's got to produce a product. Okay. Okay. So once it's produced, I consider that to be the upstream side of the market. Mm -hmm. Somebody's producing something. Um, It can't just sit there. It's... It's got to get to market somehow or another, in other words, so we can store it for a certain period of time. So I view the transportation of it as the midstream side. So okay. they produce a product, midstream company takes it, and they bring it to somewhere, a facility, a downstream market. So okay. so typically the midstream side of it, which is obviously my passion is the midstream mm-hmm. side, is essentially the transportation side of product. It gets from point A to point B. It can be small, big. The downstream side would be more in line with, it gets to a facility, the production, the refining of it, and then it goes somewhere. So upstream would be more the the development of the product. Midstream would be the transportation of the product. Downstream is the refining. And so in in a a general term, there are operators that may view it a little bit different. But for me, that's generally the way out. That's my perspective on it. Well, that helps me to understand a lot. Good. In a domestic 
regional sense, what happens when pipeline infrastructure is inadequate to accommodate heavy production? Very good question. Um, and I saw it firsthand when I had gone uh, to the Marcellus up in the Northeast. Okay. I saw a lot of production up there, a lot of wells being drilled, a very aggressive play on, on the on the Marcellus Shale. And at the time, they had one main pipeline that basically took the product to the Millennium Pipeline up in New York. So a lot of people were drilling wells, and um, the problems they were facing is there just wasn't enough infrastructure to get their product to market. If you can envision all this product going to one place, and there's just not enough capacity to get it to a marketplace. So what happened is is there was um, a severe uh, fallout for the infrastructure. The midstream side of it. Okay. A lot of drilling, a lot of wells being drilled, a lot of production up there, but there was a problem getting it to market. Okay. So... So it's uh, like crunch time. It was like all this production's coming in and all these people drilling wells and there's just not enough pipeline infrastructure to get it to some market. People don't drill wells for it just to sit there in a bucket. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> they drill wells to produce and uh, sell it. get it to market and sell it. I mean, it's a business. So what happened is, uh, and I saw it, it was severe up there and in a sense that they just couldn't get it to market. So you started to see the need for pipeline infrastructure to get developed. And to this day, there's still a need for it. Up there, West Texas, some of these plays that have just an insurmountable amount of wells being drilled, there's still a lack of infrastructure. Hard to imagine. It's hard to imagine. When yeah, you look- I've seen a map and, you know, turned on the pipelines and looked at it, and it looks like an amazing cluster of lines Phenomenal. going every which way. Phenomenal. Phenomenal. Yeah, How much pipe is in the ground. But still not enough. Still not enough. That's amazing, <laughs> isn't it? Still not enough. That's amazing. So, so there are, and as these, um, fields develop and this production develops there's obviously a need and you see it a lot in west texas right now in the midland odessa there's just a lot of need for infrastructure to get the product out of there so um and those companies are losing money while they wait for this infrastructure to be built or i'm not sure they're losing money but it uh, but they're maybe pro- tapping their feet, it, wanting that pipeline. It probably ASAP. prohibits them from reaping full benefit. I know in the Northeast it did because their estimates for production on these wells were curtailed because the they call it back pressure was greater than them getting the product into the pipe, into the main trunk line pipeline. So they just couldn't produce these wells at the rate they wanted to flow them. So from a revenue standpoint, I'm sure it does uh, play a role in And probably creates some impatience or sense of of urgency. Absolutely. So when they call you, they're... Yeah, we, 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 we need to get this done. We, <laughs> we need to get this done like right now. We, we don't have time to wait. We need to get this infrastructure in place. Please help us. <laughs> <laughs> and that's awesome that you can. Yes, it so is. So can you talk about pipelines and just their relative efficiency of transport as a comparison to a rail car or some other you know, mode of moving that product. Yeah, and there's yes, okay, I can I can give you my opinion about yeah, it. There's yeah. a lot of people that may differ, but um <clears throat> you know when you think about the the safety of a pipeline and um one thing about in the United States there are regulatory agencies that really look at that. They really 
have a lot of regulations on pipeline infrastructure. Mm-hmm. And I see it every day. I see some of the some of the requirements that these pipeline companies have to go through to make sure that what they're building is safe for the public. Right. You know, first and foremost, I see it a lot. I see the some of the audits that they go through with uh, DOTD. Um, I see some of the requirements firsthand that they're required to do to make sure the pipe is safe. Simple welding of a pipe has requirements that are governed by regulations. It's, yeah. So that way that everybody is um, following the same guidelines to make sure they're putting in a safe product to keep it safe for the public. So I guess when you look at it from that perspective versus, you know, maybe having transportation on highways or something, you know, there's, there's, you know, always a chance of accidents on highways, you know, you see yeah, it. Yeah, we see it all the time. All the time. And so, you know, in my perspective, I think it's a, a safe way to transport that type of material. The chances of accidents are probably far less than on a highway system. Yeah, you know, yeah. There's, you know, um, so I, I think from a general overview, it's a very safe way of transporting product from point A to B. It takes longer, obviously. The costs are probably a lot more because you're you're not just putting it on a truck and just transporting it down the highway. You have to build this system. Yeah. You might have to build a thousand mile pipeline to get it from point A to point B. Yeah. But once time. you do, it's like, I mean, I guess while you're talking, I'm thinking of, you know, I'm driving on the highway. The right of way is paralleling me and probably there's product moving in that right of way just as I'm traveling. Every day. So it's just a constant flow. It is. Into those facilities. And and a lot of these major companies um, have to do incremental surveys on their pipe to make sure that they're meeting standards that Mm. the government is requiring them to meet. So they can't just put a pipe in the ground and sort of forget about it. You know, they have to worry about corrosion. They have to worry about many different things that's dictated by the government. There are a lot of regulations that once you install your pipeline, you're going to meet these regulations on an incremental basis so that you can reassure the public that yeah. this is a safe operation. So I, I think from my perspective, it's a it's a far safer operation probably than transporting it via vehicle only because there's a lot of accidents on the highways that are yeah. not anyone's fault sometimes, but it happens. So Yeah, absolutely. So we kind of touched on this um, just in talking about that tangled web of pipelines. But um, <laughs> so regionally, do we have a shortage of pipelines to carry product where it needs to go? And maybe like how significant is that shortage? That's, a, that's an interesting question because when you look on a map, Mm-hmm. It is, uh, it's just a blob of pipelines. <clears throat> so do we have a shortage? I don't know that we have a shortage. I think the market drives the need for the, for the pipeline. So it's kind of, this may lead into another question you may have uh, a little later on, but there's two components to it. There's a market side of a project, and then there's a commercial side. So you may look at a certain geographical, South Louisiana, we've got more pipe in the ground over here than you can imagine. Do we have pipe that meets the needs for a customer that wants to run polypropylene from point A to point B? Maybe and maybe not. We yeah. it, the, the, the specifics of the pipe, the pressure, the design may not meet the needs for that particular project. So the okay. market may say, we need more infrastructure to move a specific product. I guess I haven't thought about that, of the necessity for different classifications of of product and the different piping even that has to be there to support that type of chemical or whatever it may be. Some some product can be very corrosive. 
um, some products, some you may have a, a ton of lines, and there might be six, eight, ten, twelve inch pipelines, but this particular customer may need a 30 inch pipeline to move the volume of product. Okay. So here comes the commercial side of it. Yeah. You know, so the market is saying, um, yeah, we have a lot of pipelines in the area, but we need additional pipelines to handle. Think about it, maybe 30 years ago, we didn't have the amount of people, we didn't have the need for all the product, all right. the gasoline fuel. So I may have put in a 10 inch pipeline and you know what? It served the purpose for the time being. Yeah. Well, in today's day and age, not only do you have domestic, you have international, you have a lot of other components that drive the pipeline industry. Yeah. So the infrastructure in place may not meet the needs of the market. So, okay. so we may say, well, instead of this 16-inch line, we really need a 20-inch line. Well, I'm going to have to install a 20-inch line to get this product to market. So you can see that's the that's the market side. Then the mm-hmm. commercial side is you have operators that are in business to make money and to market their product. No yeah. different than we do the same thing over here. So there may be a ton of infrastructure in the place, specific area. But this particular operator says, I've negotiated a contract with these downstream users. Okay. And I'm going to install my pipeline. Mm-hmm. even though there's 15 of them right here that belong to 15 other operators. Okay. But I'm going to install my pipeline and because I have game. a commercial need to get from point A to point B to service my downstream customers. Okay. So that you can see, so there's a market side of it, what I consider, and there's a, a strong commercial side of it. Yeah. And you see it, and I see it every day. I see customers wanting to install a pipeline. You can see there's a pipeline right here. That pipeline belongs to customer A, B, and C, and... It's not going to serve them. It's not going to serve them. So they're going to have to, from a commercial standpoint and the business perspective, they have to install another line. So, Well, I guess that keeps things moving. It keeps product moving. The the surprising thing is even with the infrastructure we have in place, some of the infrastructure is dated. Okay. So Mm -hmm. it may not meet code. It may not meet the specifications that a customer needs to get the product to market. Okay. You see, so... Just because there's a pipeline in place doesn't mean that it's a, it's a pipeline that's serviceable. It, okay. There may be some issues with it, so they may take it out of service okay. to protect the public. You see what right, I'm saying? Right, so, right. so even though there's a lot of infrastructure in place, there is some aging infrastructure that may have issues with it, so it may not even be pipe that is even used anymore. Okay. So, and you see that a lot. You see it in a lot like of... Like an abandoned Abandoned line. line, yes. You see that in some of these old oil and gas fields, you know, They've produced it, produced it. The field went offline, and you have these abandoned pipelines in place. So you probably have a lot of that. It's like the skeleton remains of production <laughs> of yesteryear. Yes, there's a lot of it out there. It's interesting so, to think about. Yeah, it's a very interesting. You know, there's a lot. I, I know our podcast is going to be relatively short, but when you look at the longevity of the industry, there's when you really sit down and look back to long before we even got involved in it, this has yeah. been around. And uh, there's a lot of infrastructure in place now that doesn't meet the needs or the specifications because of the regulations that the government's needed to put in place. Operators now say, okay, I need to meet this specific code Mm -hmm. to flow my product. And this piece of pipe sitting right here doesn't meet code. So I'm going to have to install a new pipe. It just won't do it. Pressure, whatever it might be. Yeah, yeah. Man. Um, (laughs) Interesting, isn't it? (laughs) It really is. It's fascinating. (laughs) And I'm so glad we're talking about it. 
So you have um, you've performed pipeline work in Louisiana, Texas, Arkansas, Mississippi, and Pennsylvania while at Finstamaker. Are there distinctive qualities that you find from state to state, or is a pipeline project pretty standard across state lines? Another interesting question. I think from a pipeline perspective, they are standard. Okay, mm. when you build a pipeline, there's going to be procedures that generally guide you to build a pipeline. Individual states may have certain regulations that dictate the way you're going to do things and the way you're going to permit things. Okay. Um, so that's one very distinct difference that if you're doing something potentially in Pennsylvania, the regulations over there could be far different than the regulations in Louisiana. You're going to maybe build a pipe under the same DOT guidelines, mm -hmm. but the regulations may be different. Okay. Second, you have a constructability issue. So I'm working in Pennsylvania and I'm going through rock every day. So I'm blasting. I'm doing a lot of things. I'm in hill country. I'm in the mountains. Uh, I'm doing a lot of things that in South Louisiana, I never do. They'll never go through the Chafalaya Basin. They'll probably very seldom have a push site to push pipe through there, concrete coated push pipe. So you can see that the constructability side from state to state can be far different. So yeah. if I'm losing you, just... No, from the geography and from the regulatory side. Exactly. Exactly. Getting. So when you look at installing pipe, let's say across the Chafalaya Basin, well, there's a lot of interesting challenges for putting a pipe there. Well, the challenge is when you go into the Northeast, when you go into West Texas, are some of the same. They're just not the same type of environment, but you're still going to have challenges of getting up a mountain and blasting across a mountain and building things. So what you see is more constructability probably driven than the actual building of the pipe. That's pretty mm -hmm. standard. Okay. Yeah, I have a question. I've always been curious in kind of driving on mountain roads. Are they using a lot of dynamite for that? What what you no, you, oh, you mentioned blasting. Yes. So that's what they're using dynamite. Oh. So so how do you do that? You just line it up and Yeah, blow so it out? it's really a pretty interesting um I'll just use a, a pipeline route. So and and there's really a lot of safety precautions. I saw it firsthand in the northeast. I was mm -hmm. extremely impressed with the amount of safety that's involved in that, but they would actually install dynamite at, at certain increments along the center line of the pipe because okay. you couldn't dig it. It's rock. It's right, you know, right. I'd, I'd get into these these um these rock beds, I mean, it was just solid rock. So they would install these dynamite capsules all along the route, and then they would dynamite it and essentially just create this ditch. And they'll go back in there, they'll dig it up and pile the rock on the side, and now you have a pipeline dish through there. That's so, wild. yeah, it's, 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 a, it's a pretty interesting concept considering we never worry about that here in louisiana yeah uh, because we're it's all it's mud it's mud and clay <laughs> <laughs> but that has its own challenges within itself so yeah. a contractor that's used to working in a in a mountainous range would have a lot of struggles in south louisiana and vice versa you so know we're not we, using dynamite down here no we're no we no <laughs> we, we don't have a need for that down here but uh, you'll see it over in uh, some of the projects we're doing in West Texas. There's rock outcroppings there, so mm -hmm. you have the same issues there. So, you know, it, it's, it's just interesting to see the different constructability components of a project, more so depending on the geographical region that you're yeah. working in. So, yeah. so anyway. Okay. You have such a good variety of perception on it. Since well, I've been fortunate. I've been fortunate areas. to... Uh, to work in these different areas and these different environments and, and not just, um, I'm fortunate because I've been on the right of way. So I'm not just an office person. I've been on the right of way. I've watched this happen day in and day out. I've watched them do HDDs and, 
areas that he like, holy mackerel, this is nothing but bedrock, you know, and uh, so that enables me to have a much better knowledge base. Just for uh, clarification, what's HDD? Horizontal directional drill. That's a very okay. common term, in, uh, and it's a very common practice in the midstream world. So you see, it's a good question. So you learned something right here. Yeah. But it's a very common practice in the midstream world is to have a horizontal directional drill. It's a design drill. And there's many different reasons why we use it in the midstream, but it's a process that is used a lot in the business. And maybe after the podcast, I can offline explain it to you because yeah. it's very interesting. It is very interesting, and it is a procedure that's used more and more every day. Yeah, you're making me want to go out in the field. <laughs> no, you, you'd love it. I, I, I strongly recommend the new people that come on board at Instamaker to go out in the field and see this because I can talk it. But until you sit there and you watch them do a, you know, uh, an HDD or a little guided bore or actual you know push site with a push rack and all the welding stations and the process to get it down a right away it's very uh interesting and you can see the cost perspective mm-hmm. and the manpower it takes to actually do this so, yeah, yeah and some of the brain power too unbelievable it's 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 phenomenal too and i'm sure the technology there has evolved tremendously 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 yeah <laughs> so I'm so, sure we could talk forever. So. Uh, forever, forever on that. <laughs> Can you um, walk us through one of your favorite projects to date? I, I, yes, I could. Uh, and I'm not going to be too long-winded on this, but the um, this is a project I did probably in 2015. Okay. Um, I'll keep the names out of the out of the picture here, but it, it was interesting in a sense that it did go through the Chafalaya base and it went through South Louisiana. So the project itself had its own challenges, went through some sophisticated landowners. So you had to deal with a lot of very sophisticated landowners and very sophisticated attorneys. Okay. Okay. So that in itself poses a challenge. But what was interesting about that is probably midstream, the client had a shift in the project manager. Okay. Okay. So um, when you deal with these different projects, so each Project manager may have their own style. So in the middle of this project, we had a shift in PM, project manager. Uh-huh. Okay. And uh, it was the first time I had worked with this project manager. Brilliant guy. Knew the industry inside and out, but his style was far different than the first one. Yeah. Okay. So so now, from fence-to-maker standpoint, is we have to keep going down the same path. Yeah. So the beauty behind what we do, and what I like about it mm-hmm. is we have to shift to meet our clients' needs. Regardless of what's in front of us, it's immaterial. We yeah. have to shift to meet our clients' needs. And his needs were generally the same, but in a different direction. Okay. Not only that, but you also have a constructability person that we're working with that was working with me. And we were getting this thing laid out. And we had a shift in that person. Wow. So he comes in and knows nothing about why this was designed this way. Uh-oh. So I have to explain it to him. And his constructability thought process could have been different than the first guy's constructability thought okay. process. So so you can see right in the middle of a project is you have these changes. And you have to adjust to those changes. And Go we did. It. We yeah. did. And it was, it got installed and uh, built in time within budget. Oh, nice. So... <laughs> So um, so it was interesting from a perspective of not the project itself, but the changes in the key personnel in the middle of the project. Yeah. Well, I guess at the end of the day, we're always working with people. 
100 percent of the time presents some interesting challenges all the time because everyone's so different but you have a great personality and very you seem very um just flexible and and go with the flow um and just kind of like able to roll with whatever is happening i think what you'll see what i've learned is the Ability for success is not necessarily the technology. It's understanding. We never choose who we work with or for, mm-hmm. but we always have to be successful. Oh, yeah. Always. One of my philosophies is I have to always be available to change to my client's needs mm-hmm. and the people I'm working for. Yeah. So what I may do for Catherine may work great for Catherine, but right next door I may be doing something for someone else. The end result's going to need to be the same, but... Their process may be completely different from Catherine's. So yeah. the ability to adjust is what leads to success. It's very, very simple, but it can be very complicated. I guess I can liken that to like having different dance partners. Like, That's right. You know, you have to kind of. You pick one and you know what? You don't pick your dance partner and they give you one. And yeah. you say, okay, yeah. let me see. Well, and the music's four, playing. Four and... different music. <laughs> I have a different dance partner, but I still have to achieve. Yeah. I, I'm, so, Got me what, to so what do I do? So do I try to <laughs> fix the system or do I adapt to the system that's given yeah. to me and move forward? And that's, to me, yeah. that's part of what I enjoy is I listen. I don't choose who I work with. And mm-hmm. it's sort of immaterial to me because in the end, I still have to deliver a product. You yeah. Know, so... And from everything I hear, you do a fantastic job at it. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. (laughs) So pipeline projects, from what I understand, can be very stressful. So what are some things that you do personally to manage that stress and take care of yourself? Okay. And and that's a good point. And I'm glad people understand that, especially on the midstream side. 70, 80 hours a week is not uncommon. It's, It's really not. Not just for me, for the team of people that work on these projects. So this question right here is probably the mo- one of the more important ones because you have to find a way mm-hmm. to leave the office and leave the office and leave the project even though it never leaves you mm-hmm. you have to find a way so for me it's it's, it's pretty easy okay. uh, it took me some time to figure it out okay but um you have a formula i have a formula it's called exercise <laughs> okay I like so it. so what i do is um i enjoy uh working out yeah, you know, I'm a fitness instructor at Reds also. So I, I enjoy that part because when I'm doing that, I separate from the office. I separate yeah. from my work. Uh, I'm, I go in a different place, and it's a place I enjoy, and yeah. I love it. I've done it my whole life, and hopefully until the 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 day the Lord takes me, I'll continue to do what it. What kind of classes are you teaching? Oh, oh, geez. At one time, I was teaching nine different modalities at Reds, but that got okay. two. Yeah, so I, I'm down to about five. Okay. Yeah, cycling, med ball, uh, pump, circuit training, which is sort of like CrossFit, boot okay. camp, uh, water aerobics, step aerobics. Uh, that is geez. diverse. <laughs> I love I've it. Ta- I've taught them all at Red. So, uh, so anyway, but that is part of my stress relief. Second of all is sometimes I'll go home and I just put the TV on with just a little bit of music and I'll sit there with my uh, with my dog and that's it. That's what I disconnect. Just I might put the decompress. phone. I do. So um, I'm around people a lot at the office here. I've got yeah. the phone. You've seen my phone. It goes off nonstop. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I go to res and I've got classrooms of people. So some, the part about it is going to the, you know, into my quiet zone at the house or something like that. Then I, I do have a lake house in Toledo Bend. So that nice. is so quiet over there that 
I can disconnect yeah. <laughs> completely. I can get in my boat and go fishing and I have just me and the natural beauty the Lord has given us. That's how I, I take care of managing my stress is to try to find a way to disconnect. And you can never do it 100% because mm-hmm. at the level that we work, mm-hmm. you always have the phone with you and yeah. part of our expectations is to be able to deliver. But, you know, I, I do find a time to disconnect. So. I love that. Well, so as a closing question that I ask all of my guests, sure. in the spirit of Fueled, mm-hmm. um, our podcast name, what fuels you in general, in life, work, family? What keeps you going? And it's so simple for me. It's, um, it's a simple term. It's called excellence. You know what I'm saying? It's called excellence. <laughs> Some people get caught up in perfection. I, I never get caught up in perfection. Okay. I care less about perfection. But I, I realized I was very fortunate from an early age to have a great family, a great family upbringing. And I realized, you know, everything I did, there was an excellence component to it. It just couldn't be done halfway, midway. It had to be done to the best of my ability all the time. And that has followed me all through life. And, and, and I notice everything that I've done is driven by that. Because mm-hmm. I can be outside cutting the grass and I'll go sit down after I do my yard and I'll sit down and just look at it and say, well, that's an excellent job. Oh, good. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so it, whether it was at work with my family, I have, I have a great family. I, I love to just visit with them. You know, triathlons, I've done a million triathlons and marathons and, you know, competed my whole life. And it was all about doing the best that I could under any circumstance. Might not have been perfect. Might have been a bad day. But you know what? It was the best I could do on that given day. And that's how I come to work every day. I tell that to people. They say, well, you seem to love your job. I said, I do. I said, I have the best job in the world. I said, I come to work every day. I love what I do. I have somebody that wants to pay me to do what I love what I do. So this makes life so easy for me. Hey, that this is out. a piece of cake. Yeah. So, <laughs> But it's really driven by excellence. It's, yeah. it's, it's, it's really driven by excellence. And I can sit back and I look at the teams and all the projects we work on. And you see it. So hopefully if I can project that, people will follow that lead. And I'll see it all the time. You see people yeah. that try to do their best. And it's never perfect. But it is their best. And what more can you ask? So I figure, you know, for me, that's what drives me. And I know it's, it's a very simple component. But it reminds me, you know, something my dad told me probably a long time ago and he might not even remember saying it but some things have a tendency to stick you know yes. and so he had told me just Catherine do not settle for mediocrity and I think that's kind of in line with what you're saying is to just drive for excellence yes. and bypassing on perfection I think so important because that can be a source of so much anxiety and stress because we can't <laughs> achieve perfection. But so I like your philosophy of it. Yeah, that's, that's really you know, and, and and your dad, one thing I, I, uh, I've always applauded him because in, in my mind is Bill was about excellence. He, he never really, you know, always do the right thing was, was a, a strong, you know, always do the right thing and be fair. Yeah. You know, and that that was something that has stuck with me from the two most important words I've ever heard out of Bill are those two words. And they, they have a lot of true meaning to them, yeah. you know. But anyway, so for me, it's, it's, it's just simply just a matter of just excelling in, in what I do and what I undertake and hopefully lead people to follow the same guidelines. And I think that leads to success. Well, thank you so much for you spending time welcome. with me today. No, thank I you. I so appreciate it. I hope I wasn't too long winded. No, absolutely not perfect.